make it sound. On February 13, 1983, Marvin Gaye, already a living legend from his Motown days, confidently strode out to center court at the Forum in Inglewood, California, home of the Los Angeles Lakers, to sing the national anthem before the 33rd NBA All-Star Game. The NBA was in the midst of shifting to the Showtime era, what had been a somewhat staid blue-collar league during the dominance of the Boston Celtics in the 50s and 60s was now leaning into the glitz and glamour of Hollywood behind Magic Johnson's brilliantly flashy style on the court. And Marvin Gaye was a perfect bridge to the new era. He was simply the epitome of cool in the early 80s, and his sleekly tailored gray suit and dark sunglasses only completed the picture, echoing the slick look of the Lakers' new head coach Pat Riley with his slick back hair and Armani suits. And then he delivered what was to that point in time, and still remains in the minds of many, the single greatest rendition of the national anthem in history. It still holds up. To that time, nobody had pulled off a soulful and even perhaps sexy version of the Star Spangled Banner. But here it was with Gay's signature four-octave range voice on full display with only a stripped-down drum machine accompaniment. Time Magazine would later call it a, quote, seminal moment in sports history. And it's been immortalized countless times since, including serving as the first video ever aired on VH1 when the channel launched back in 1985 and getting sampled for a 2008 Nike commercial. For Gay, the moment capped off a late career resurgence for the singer, who was suddenly at the center of the music culture again after Sexual Healing, his first single from his post-Motown album Midnight Love, became a smash hit that spent 10 weeks in the top spot of Billboard's Hot Black Singles and climbed all the way to the number three spot on the Billboard Hot 100. But although his career was back on the upswing, his personal life was another story altogether. The singer was still recovering from a very messy divorce from Anna Gordy, sister of the legendary founder of Motown Records, Barry Gordy, that saw him remit a portion of the royalties from one of his albums, which Gay stingingly titled, Here My Dear. The scathing album gave his fans an unsparing view of the marriage from Gay's perspective, and even prompted a threat from Gordy to sue Gay for millions of dollars for invasion of privacy. Although they would later publicly reconcile and become friends, the toll of the nasty split wreaked havoc on Gay's life which was spiraling out of control in a haze of sex addiction, drug abuse, depression, and paranoia. By 1983, Gay's mental health was in a shockingly bad condition. He'd always suffered from stage fright and bouts of self-doubt, but his drug use had exacerbated these issues. On top of this, he actually was receiving several death threats similar to many celebrities of his stature, but the real threats were being filtered through a prism of his own cocaine and PCP-fueled delusions. The extreme paranoia was leading him to wear bulletproof vests everywhere, and he started to surround himself with armed bodyguards for protection. He'd even recently called a press conference to inform the media that he'd hired a lawyer to look into a belief that he'd been recently the victim of an intentional poisoning. But much of the harm was actually self-inflicted, as there were reports of the singer attempting suicide on multiple occasions, including by ingesting an ounce of cocaine in one hour, and even jumping out of a sports car going 60 miles an hour in late March 1984. On April 1st, 1984, against the backdrop of rising family tensions over his tumultuous personal life and the paranoid delusions we just discussed, Marvin Gaye was shot twice in the chest by his own father after an altercation in the singer's home in the West Adams neighborhood of Los Angeles. The 38 caliber revolver Marvin Gaye Sr. used to fire the fatal shots was actually a Christmas gift from his son. Marvin Gaye was just 44 years old. He would have turned 45 the very next day. 
I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, Marvin Gaye. The day of Marvin's death began in pretty typical fashion. It was a typical Sunday morning with people milling about after church, but Marvin Gaye Sr. was already in a foul mood. He was looking for an insurance letter that had gone missing in his house and, like some grumpy patriarchs, he was ranting about who had misplaced it and growing increasingly angry as the hours passed without tracking it down. There were also long, simmering resentments between father and son. Gay's childhood was extremely violent. His upbringing had been described as, quote, a series of brutal whippings in his strict Pentecostal household. And the singer would later say it was like, quote, living with a king, a very peculiar, changeable, cruel, and all-powerful king. Marvin Sr. was also a heavy drinker, and his daughter would later write in her own memoir, My Brother Marvin, that her father battled his own demons and may have been a secret cross-dresser. There were also rumors that Marvin Jr. was gay. He was said to have had added the E to the end of his name as a tribute to his secret love of Sam Cooke, whose last name also has a silent E, but his deeply religious father was not particularly tolerant in that way. It was a toxic mix. Marvin Jr. saw himself as a new provider in the home, but Marvin Sr., the aging patriarch, was unwilling to accept the new order. Marvin's drug addictions and mental health were also becoming unmanageable. In the months leading up to his death, the singer was afraid to leave his own room, constantly spoke of death and suicide, and on a few occasions would lead the home, often high in cocaine looking disheveled in multiple overcoats with his shoes on the wrong feet. His father, a deeply religious man, but also battled his own alcohol issues, deeply resented as the unsavory characters would visit his son, usually bringing drugs and women. The fight over the missing insurance letter was really just the straw that broke the camel's back. Marvin Sr. started impatiently shouting to his wife and Marvin's mother, Alberta Gay, herself a sweet-natured and religious woman who often read Bible passages to her son to offer him hope and optimism during his most depressive episodes. Alberta and her son were very close. He absolutely adored her, and you can hear a bit of their sweet dynamic in this rare footage of the two of them talking about his career, which helped shed some light on how both shared a somewhat calm, soft-spoken disposition that stood in stark contrast to the volatile Marvin Sr. in the household. Your main ambitions when you was a little boy, uh, very young, you wanted to go in show business. And I think you probably have accomplished some of the things that was in your mind that you want to accomplish. And so now you feel that if you had to do it again, you'd rather be a doctor. Well, I, I guess it's think a lot of things I'd rather be. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if I wouldn't still be a performer. Because in this life, I just, I love music, and music is, is my love, you know, it's, it's all I know. Alberta was also frail and vulnerable at this point, as she was recovering from kidney surgery and suffered from weakness in her legs. The screaming cut through Marvin Jr., and a conflict erupted when Marvin Sr. stormed into his son's bedroom to scold Alberta. Marvin Jr., wearing only a maroon bathrobe, leapt to his mother's defense and shoved his father out of the room. Marvin Sr. would later say that his son brutalized him, kicking and beating him mercilessly with pent-up rage, and his account was actually backed up by Alberta, who said, quote, Marvin hit him. I shouted for him to stop, but he paid no attention to me. He gave my husband some hard kicks. Minutes later, at around 12.38 p.m., Marvin Sr. appeared at the door with a 38 caliber revolver given to him by Marvin the previous Christmas. He said nothing, aimed, and fired a fatal shot into his son's chest. The first bullet ripped through Gay's heart, right lung, diaphragm, liver, stomach, and left kidney. His body immediately slumped to the floor. 
Marvin Sr. then took a few steps towards the body, aimed, and fired again at Point Blake range. Alberta screamed in terror and swung her ailing body down the staircase, begging Marvin Sr. to spare her life and screaming, He shot Marvin. He's killed my boy. Marvin Sr. didn't shoot her and calmly went to the front porch. His daughter-in-law threw the gun on the lawn, and then he waited for the authorities to arrive. Gay's brother, Frankie, who lived in a guest house on the property, tended to Marvin Jr. as he lay bleeding in his room. According to Frankie, Marvin, speaking just above a whisper, uttered his final words to his brother, saying, quote, I got what I wanted. I couldn't do it myself, so I made him do it. It's good. I ran my race. There's no more left for me. At 1.01 p.m., Marvin Gay Jr. was pronounced dead at a California hospital. The autopsy would later reveal that Gay had cocaine and PCP in his system, and although these played no role in his cause of death, the drugs would play a role in the ultimate outcome of the criminal case for his father. Marvin Sr. was arrested and held at L.A. County Jail on $100,000 bail before ultimately being charged with first-degree murder. At his preliminary hearing, the judge noted that the PCP found in Marvin Jr.'s system could have provoked the violent interaction, seemingly indicating that he thought there may be mitigating circumstances in the case. There were also several other complications in the case. First, Marvin Sr. told police he was scared of his son and only shot in self-defense, believing the gun was filled with blanks or BBs, and was said to have wept upon learning his son had died. Second, Gay's siblings believed their brother's death was more akin to suicide because he was miserable and wanted to die, pointing to his several suicide attempts as proof that provoking the fight with their father, who was known to be violent and had made death threats against his kids in the past, was a means to an end. This is interesting, Jason. It's sort of some of the descriptions from people who knew Marvin at the time do consider this sort of a suicide by cop situation, only with his father, who was known to have this violent temper. The tensions were very high in the house and that Marvin just didn't have the will to live anymore. And the final words that Frankie says Marvin whispered to him are sort of consistent with that. They are. It's interesting, though. I I, I don't know how that plays out in court, right? You, you have a party that's... You have this allegation that he knew how dangerous I was. Therefore, by coming at me, he must have known there was a risk of death. Right. What a bizarre defense that is to a case. Absolutely bizarre. Right? And, the, and the nature of the uh, sort of argument they have doesn't seem like it got to the point where he knew the father was going to pull the gun and threaten him or anything like that. Right. They had an argument. He defended his mother. The father went and gets the gun, senior, says nothing. Senior leaves the room, comes back, doesn't say a word and shoots. And just fires. It, it just, it doesn't add up to a suicide a cop situation where somebody goes out in front of somebody who he knows is armed, provokes the armed person and to says, shoot, shoot me, shoot, says, me. shoot me. That was not this situation. Right. The third really different element of this case from other cases you'll see is that Marvin Sr. was diagnosed with a benign brain tumor at the base of his brain that was removed in May 1984. Although he was ultimately deemed competent to stand trial after psychiatric evaluations, the health issues introduced a possible source of sympathy that could have complicated the prosecutor's ability to secure a conviction. Marvin Gates Sr. was ultimately offered a deal, pleading no contest to a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter in September 1984. He received a six-year suspended sentence and five years of probation, so he served no jail time for this, except in the immediate aftermath after his arrest. During the sentencing hearing, Marvin Sr. tearfully told the court, quote, if I could bring him back, I would. I was afraid of him. I thought I was going to get hurt. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm really sorry for everything that happened. I loved him. I wish he could step through that door right now. I'm paying the price now. We're going to take an ad break. More on the fallout from Marvin Gaye's murder when we come back. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. 
Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back and their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless from researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience. Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. I want to emphasize how desperately sad this story is, because while Marvin Jr. had talked about his upbringing as being quite violent, and Marvin Sr. would whip him and so forth, it was, it was a very tumultuous upbringing— he lived with his parents. You know, his his parents uh, lived in the home. He By this bought, point, he's he fabulously this wealthy, house. right? He's fabulously wealthy. He is a wreck, though. His personal life was, you know, women shuffling in and out, these unsavory characters. And his father was very old school from a Pentecostal church. So to see these seedy types who are dealing drugs to his son come in and out of the house, it just set everything at, at a fever pitch the entire time. And this was not sort of inevitable, but... It, you can see the boiling tension. Not to be too pop psychologist about the whole thing, but I think Marvin Gaye Sr. probably saw his worst qualities in his son as well, right? Alcoholic, Absolutely. violent. Uh, we don't know about the women in and out, but he lived a certain type of lifestyle that Marvin Gaye Jr. was now emulating. And as parents ourselves, we know there's nothing worse than when you look at your kid who has a bad trait and you say, oh my God, that is me. It's a great point. And he was part his mother and part his father because if you hear, hear in that clip, that soft-spoken voice, any interviews of Marvin Gaye, he's very very understated. And that was like his mother, but he's also this huge charismatic superstar with a beautiful voice. That's sort of the sort of charisma that probably came a little bit out of his father. Yeah. So he was truly a mix. And, and as you said, uh, you know, as a parent, you see the qualities of yourself and your children right. for good and bad. Right. News of Gay's death prompted a huge outpouring from his legions of fans and old friends from Motown. A huge funeral was held at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale and was attended by 10,000 people. There was an open casket and Gay was resplendently dressed in a gold and white military style uniform with an ermine wrap around his shoulders from his final concert tour. Smokey Robinson and Dick Gregory delivered eulogies for the late singer. I like to raise people's consciousness, he said. I like to give them hope. Well, Brother Marvin, you did that. And you did it with class and warmth and love. Stevie Wonder spoke and performed a new song called Lighting Up the Candles in Marvin's honor. We should be happy to know that in the spirit of what he was as a human being and the spirit of his music, Marvin is with us. Lighting up the candles Lighting up our love
Gay didn't leave behind a will, so his son, Marvin III, became co-administrator of his estate and was tasked with paying off around $1.9 million in back taxes and unpaid alimony to Marvin's exes. Eventually, royalties from his music would pay off the debts. And in addition to Stevie Wonder's tribute song at the funeral, several other musicians released tracks to commemorate the singing legend. Some of the tributes became sizable hits themselves, which is somewhat rare and typically only happens when the artist who died is hugely significant. Think of Puff Daddy and Faith Hill's I'll Be Missing You tribute to Biggie Smalls. Diana Ross released a song called Missing You that peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. And then, of course, perhaps most famous, the Commodores released Night Shift, which was dedicated to Gay and Jackie Wilson and ended up hitting the top 10 on the Billboard charts as well. And beyond all that, Marvin Gaye was a broader cultural force than just in music, something that's underscored by the fact that there's still an annual Marvin Gaye Day celebration in Washington, D.C. every year, as well as streets and parks named in his honor. Gaye even received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, with none other than Eddie Murphy writing one of the biggest letters in support of giving his longtime idol the honor. There was even a stamp issued by the United States Postal Service during their Music Icon series. And he's got some pretty impressive company. Previous honorees include Elvis Presley and John Lennon. So what exactly made Marvin Gaye such an important part of music history? In my mind, it really comes down to two things, his voice and his social commentary. Let's start with his voice first. Marvin Gaye had a legendary four octave vocal range. His early albums recorded mainly in the baritone and tenor range, but he soon adopted a trademark rasp and higher pitched gospel elements that really defined his style. By the early 1970s, Grammy-winning songwriter Rob Bowman remarked that Gay had developed three distinct voices, his smooth, sweet tenor, a growling rasp, and an unreal falsetto. All three are on full display in perhaps his biggest hit of all time that claimed the top spot on Billboard's Hot 100 and remained on the charts for 19 weeks. This, of course, is his ode to doing it. Let's get it on. Second, aside from his incredible voice, which other singers from Motown had, Gay was defined by his commitment to singing about important political and social issues of the day. Many Motown artists actually shied away from political and social commentary for fear of alienating pop audiences, and even Barry Gordy sort of famously didn't want to lean into divisive issues. He wanted to sell albums. Gay, however, was deeply affected by social upheaval, including the Watts riot in 1965 and the Black Panthers' provocative methods. And he famously asked himself, quote, with the world exploding around me, how am I supposed to keep singing love songs? Barry Gordy, as I mentioned, was reluctant to indulge Gay's interests in socially conscious material at the risk of ruining his image as a sex symbol. But Gay ultimately convinced him with one of the most important albums of all time, 1971's What's Going On, an album that would end up topping the list of Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time and whose title track continues to move audiences to this day. Talk to me so 
There really, Derek, aren't better songs in the history of music than What's Going On and Let's Get, Let's it, Get on. it On and Sexual Healing. Honestly, and those three songs, if you were to make a list of the top 10, you could put all three of them on without thinking twice. They define it. timelessness, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I know they're older songs and many younger generations may not know them, but when you turn them on, they don't feel like old songs. They feel yeah. vibrant. They feel I very he's relevant. managed to, to maintain a relatability and a relevance that a lot of uh, singers, legends of his generation maybe have not. Obviously, with the Beatles and Elvis and, and some other, but he's in that category in terms of continued relevance. People, young people today still know who he is. It's it's, it's incredible what he accomplished. He's so. a huge idol, and he was really, at, to your point of sexual healing, that happened very late in his career. Yeah. So was there more coming for Marvin Gaye? Well, it's a, it's a good lead into the counterfactual here. I mean, Marvin Gaye was in the midst of a career resurgence when he was killed by his own father. His most lasting contributions to music probably already had been made at that point. It's a shame that he didn't get to enjoy the several decades as a Motown legend like Smokey Robinson and Diana Ross and Stevie Wonder and others. As the epitome of coolness and with the smoothest voice in town, I, I can imagine him doing features and hooks on songs well into the 80s and 90s. The rap legends on the rise just a few years from his death certainly respected the elder statesmen of R&B. Just listen to the countless samples from Dr. Dre in the 90s. Just a million examples of, Tons. of folks, you know, of Marvin Gaye songs. He really had such a lasting impression. Marvin clearly would have been the mix to play a role in shaping new music and his socially conscious leanings would have fit in nicely with a lot of the music today like music from Kendrick Lamar, Macklemore, and, and others. A final word on the legacy of Marvin Gaye doesn't really feel like the right way to end the podcast. Instead, I'll just leave you with one of my favorite songs. It's an old duet with Tammy Terrell from his Motown days when you can hear him as a young singer brimming with talent, optimism, and hope for the future ahead. Listen, baby, ain't no mountain high. Why? 